My surname is Bungay Stanier. Now, it used to be just Stanier, but when I got married back in 1995, Marcella and I combined our surnames. Stanier Bungay was never going to work, so Bungay Stanier it was, and so it remains. Now, the origin of the word Bungay, Marcella's original surname, um, is location. You know, there's actually a town, Bungay, I think they call it Bungy, in Suffolk, in the northeast of England. That's the kind of bulbous bit off on the right-hand side there. I mean, there's even a castle there, if you ever want to go and check out Bungy Castle. And Stania, well, the etymology of that is actually profession. It's a Celtic version of the word stonehewer, so someone who carves obelisks and the like. All of which to say, when people get my surname right, which is definitely not 100% of the time, there's not much expectation that it's a clue to who I am or where I'm from or what I do. But that's not the case with my guest today. Her surname and how she shows up in the world appear to be a perfect fit. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And today I'm speaking to truly somebody who is a dear friend of mine, a wonderful author, someone I look up to a great deal, and something of a unique presence in the management and leadership development world. Liz Wiseman is justly celebrated for her book, Multipliers, and she will be for her current book, which is just coming out, Impact Players. And we'll come back to Wiseman. You'll see why I think there's such a nice connection. But she doesn't call herself a wise person. She doesn't call herself a consultant or really even an author. She is, and these are her words, a researcher. And that's an important word, and it's a loaded word. Well, it's either an appropriate description of what I do, or it's a, a string around my finger, like a reminder to me, which is you are not in the business of just tossing out opinion, like go do the math, do the work, formulate a question, pursue it, pursue it deeply, like get the data, dig into it, like get a big sample size you know, work with more than an N of one, which is what I think a lot of people do in the management authoring space. Ah, uh, yes, that old N of one. I had to kind of look this up because I'm not that wise on statistics, but basically an N of one is when someone thinks, well, if it happened to me, it's probably the universal truth. And if I think about it, there's probably a correlation between which cards of privilege you've been dealt and if you suspect and kind of hope that this is the way the world works. And while it's definitely true, of course, that we have shared humanity, it's not one size fits all. And that's why data is central to Liz's work. But that's earned wisdom. It was a lesson that Liz hadn't actually figured out when she applied for her first job. She was all gung-ho and ready to start teaching leadership. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go get a job doing this. And I went to interview for one of the premier management training companies at the time. And I kind of like announced myself and my intention and like, here am I, and I would like you to hire me. And it was Ed Musselwhite, the president of Zinger Miller. And he's like, well, Liz, you seem great, but why don't you go get some management experience before trying to teach people how to manage like, how's that for an idea? And I thought it was so narrow-minded. Like, <laughs> Yep. Obviously, Liz did not get that job. Instead, her career took some interesting and unexpected turns. I went from 
I want to teach leadership to someone saying, go get a job leading. And then I take a job at Oracle and then I get my first leadership opportunity and I say no to it. So she'd been working there as a project manager and after a year, the company restructured and Liz was free to find a new job within the company. She found a team and had the perfect pitch for them, something that she was passionate about. Yep. Once again, leadership. Bob, have you noticed, like, there's a lot of managers who don't know what they're doing. He's like, yeah, I've noticed. Everyone's noticed. And I'm like, hey, I could help with that. Like, I would love to do, build a management boot camp. And like, I'm totally excited about this, passionate. Like, I'd love to do this. And Bob, Bob says to me, he goes, well, like, Liz, you're great. We'd love to have you join this group, but your manager has a different problem. He said, she's got to figure out how to get 2,000 new college grads up to speed on Oracle technology in the next year. And what would be great is if you could help her do that. So this is interesting. You know, at every turn, Liz had wanted to focus on leadership in her way, but ended up coming at it sideways, arriving via a more circuitous route. There's a lesson here. What he was saying was, Liz, make yourself useful. Like, open your eyes, look at what's happening around you. Mm. Instead of pursuing your passion, like figure out what's important here and help us do that. And it, it set something in me, like an orientation. And actually I took that job, figured out how to teach Mm. 3GL coding to a bunch of hotshot (laughs) programmers from MIT and Caltech. That's a whole nother story. (laughs) But then like within a year, they tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, we want you to manage the group. I'm like, I don't want to manage the group. I'm having a great time with my little rooms here <laughs> teaching programming right. to programmers. And and they're like, no, we really want you to do this. And I'm right. like, no, have so-and-so do it. She wants the job. I don't. I'm having fun. No, we really want you to do this. And that's when I think, like, it was the second time I have to give up the job that I right. want. right to do the job that's needed. Like there is incredible opportunity that comes in subordination. Right. And not subordinating ourselves to another person, but subordinating our will Mm. to a more collective need. Well, that's interesting because, you know, the, the book you're best known for, Multipliers, and your new book as well, speaks to less about kind of individual glory and more about, in in a way, servant leadership. How do I understand and serve the bigger cause, the bigger organization, the people around me, rather than how do I, you know, climb my own particular mountain? Yeah, I do think it is this common theme. And Mm. I think it's, um, it's maybe a virtue that America was sort of built on this idea. Right. But yet we as a culture and nation and people have become so individualistic. Mm-hmm. And I guess I've like my own experience has been I have had this rich experience and a rich career, like interesting, fun, rewarding work. But it came not by pursuing what I I was intent on. Like it did right. not come from goals. It came from just saying yes yeah. when there was a need. And maybe it's an unappre- underappreciated path. 
Right. Yeah. You know, the, um, the CEO at Box of Crayons, the company I started, is her, her thing at the moment is around being customer-centric. And at the heart of that is around understanding uh, service and this idea of what's being asked of me. How, how can I be useful and how do you fully orient around that? And, you know, we've tried to do that before, but I think we're about to step up our game around that. And I think it carries that, that core insight you have, which is in service, you can unleash a, an unexpected form of leadership, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think we think of services like, oh, this is, you know, service is smiling at annoying people, Yeah, you know, and not punching the person on the airplane who's annoying you like like that's service and it's like very surface and behavioral but it's really about what it means to serve Mm. and serving is about an orientation Mm -hmm. it's like where are you pointing yourself and are you pointing yourself at the right problem right or are you like off doing your thing are you like you know the little yeah. kid out on the the soccer field who's like picking daisies while the mm. game's being played like what where where do you think that seed was planted for you around service being central to the way you see not just leadership but the world i think you know it was probably planted in in graduate school and yeah. and i i had a um professor uh, Carrie Patterson was one of my favorite professors, as was um, Jay Bonner Ritchie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there were two stories that he told that really stuck with me. And one was an experience he had in, in the Middle East, and particularly when he was a visiting faculty member in Jerusalem. And th- this actually came after I was um, one of his students, but, you know, he was there doing um, some really interesting work, kind of teaching some leadership and management workshops at our school's Jerusalem Center. And he's driving through Jerusalem and he's in East Jerusalem and he's driving through the village of Isawiya. And this is a, a, a Palestinian village there. And he he's driving in and all, all of a sudden, like all these rocks hit his car and yeah, they crashed through the windows. A bunch of teenage boys came out, started wielding these rocks that were, you know, more weapons than yeah. pebbles. And, you know, he ends up going to the hospital. He's got 30 pieces of um, glass embedded in his arm, in his face. He's a bloody mess. And he takes a day to recuperate. And Bonner Ritchie, who's one of the most curious people I know, goes back. Mm-hmm. And he he goes back, asks to see, he parks his car outside the village, walks in, <laughs> takes, a, takes an interpreter with him. Yeah. And he asked to see the Mukhtar, the mayor. And he says, I want to talk to the boys mm. who did this. And now the mayor knows exactly what has happened and everyone knows what has happened. And, you know, these teenage boys come out, you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's known in the area because he's a professor there. And, and he says to the boys, he's like, why did you do this? And it was just this like most honest, tell me why. Yeah. And then they told him and it was about, you know, the yellow license plates on his car for them were a symbol of occupation and right. oppression. And, and he just listens to like understand their point of view and they become friends. They later visit him at the center, bring him gifts. And it was, he then goes about his work and he's teaching these workshops 
that you know involved both the Palestinian and um, the Jewish community. And it was several years later. It was um, early in 1993. He gets a phone call. Someone saying Yasser Arafat wants to meet with you, and he's heard about you that you're a bridge builder, right? And that you don't take sides. And so you know he secret tunnels and you know pillowcase <laughs> yeah. over his head. The whole thing. He goes to Tunisia and the, the headquarters, and and Arafat says to him, you know, I've heard of you, and that you don't take sides, but you seek to mm. understand. And I have this opportunity. It's unprecedented. Um, you know, he's got this opportunity to enter into what became then the 1993 Oslo yeah. Accords. And he said, I have this opportunity to begin peace talks with um, with Israel, but my cabinet, you know, half of them are vehemently, vehemently opposed to this. Yeah. And, and, you know, he says, can you work with them? And that has always really stuck with me of just mm. like, what happens when you just stay curious a little longer to quote one of my favorite <laughs> authors Yes, and just like, what does it look like from the other point of view? And right. it's about like community and seeing, okay, bigger than your own needs. And, mm. you know, he became instrumental in that process and like he implanted something in me. Yeah. I see that. Um, and then there's this other, other thing he mentioned, it was a very quick thing, a quick experience. He took his son, as probably a young teenager, or maybe middle school, high school. One summer, he took him on a tour of the United States, not a tour of the United States, but they went from um, ballpark to ballpark, he went mm -hmm. to every major baseball park Fantastic. in the United States. And at the end of the summer, one of his professor friends said, Bonner, I didn't know you loved baseball that much. Right. And Bonner said, well, I don't, but I love my son that much. Mm. And like the, the, the thought for me that comes out of that is like, what happens when we take something that's important to someone who's important to us? Yeah. And then we make it important to us. Like this isn't important to me, but it's important to someone who matters to me. So I'm yes. going to make it important, important to me. me. Yeah. It's, and like when we do that inside of organizations, Mm -hmm. something kind of magical happens. Yes. There's, will you tell us about the book that you've chosen to read from? I would love to. This is a book that I read because I read an op-ed that just like lit me up. <laughs> right. And it is one of my favorite columnists, maybe my favorite columnist, David Brooks. And right. the book is uh, The Road to Character. Right. Which I haven't read. I've I've got his book, The Second Mountain, just on my floor over there because it's the basis for some stuff I'm writing about at the moment. But um, I love that you picked David Brooks. Yeah. Oh, it's so fun. Um, here on the flap it says he focuses on the deeper values that should inform our lives. Yes. And you know he basically challenges people from thinking about their resume virtues, mm. achieving wealth, fame, status, and think more of the eulogy virtues like kindness, bravery, honesty, faithfulness, focusing on what kind of relationships we formed. And it's his struggle with this. Like, yes, There's that, that's the, that's kind of the two, the two mountains. One, the first mountain is the resume values and the second mountain is the eulogy values. Mm. Um, and how did you, how did you come to, which pages did you choose to pick from it? Because I'm always curious to know how people figure out what to read. Well, I am on page 21 and mm -hmm. it's called Summoned. The section is Summoned and it's from a chapter called The Summoned Self. 
And it begins with the story of um, Francis Perkins, who became this um, very impactful activist. But um, should I go ahead and read it? I think you should jump right in and read it. I can't wait. Today, commencement speakers tell graduates to follow their passion, to trust their feelings, to reflect and find their purpose in life. The assumption behind these cliches is that when you are figuring out how to lead your life, the most important answers are found deep inside yourself. When you are young and just settling into adulthood, you should, by this way of thinking, sit down and take some time to discover yourself, to define what is really important to you, what your priorities are, what arouses your deepest passions. You should ask certain questions. What is the purpose of my life? What do I want from life? What are the things I truly value? that are not done just to please or impress the people around me. By this way of thinking, life can be organized like a business plan. First, you take inventory of your gifts and passions, and then you set goals and come with some, up with some metrics to organize your progress toward those goals. Then you map out a strategy to achieve your purpose, which will help you distinguish those things that move you toward your goals from those things that seem urgent, but are really just distractions. If you define a realistic purpose early on and execute your strategy flexibly, you will wind up leading a purposeful life. You will have achieved self-determination of the sort captured in the off-quoted lines of, um, from William Ernest Henley's poem Invictus. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is the way people tend to organize their lives in our age of individual autonomy. It's a method that begins with the self and ends with the self. That begins with self-investigation and ends in self-fulfillment. This is the life determined by a series of individual choices. But Frances Perkins, the woman profiled earlier in the chapter, um, found her purpose in life using a different method, one that was more common in past eras. In this method, you don't ask, what do I want from life? you ask a different set of questions. What does life want from me? What are my circumstances calling me to do? In this scheme of things, we don't create our lives, we are summoned by life. The important answers are not found inside, they are found outside. This perspective begins not with the uh, autonomous self, but with the concrete circumstances in which you happen to be embedded. This perspective begins with an awareness that the world existed long before you and will last long after you, and that in the brief span of your life, you have been thrown by fate, by history, by chance, by evolution, or by God into a specific place with specific problems and needs. Your job is to figure certain things out. What does this environment need in order to be made whole? What is it that needs repair? What tasks are lying around waiting to be performed? As the novelist Frederick Buechner put it, at what points do my talents and deep gladness meet the world's deep needs? And, you know, then he goes on to describe Viktor Frankl's experience and the circumstances that he found himself in. And Michael, I can read those paragraphs, but I feel like so many of us are familiar with his story, but for, maybe for those who, who don't, it's just Viktor Frankl described this sort of call in his famous 1946 book, Man's Search for Meaning. 
Frankel was a Jewish psychiatrist in Vienna who was rounded up in 1942 by the Nazis and sent to a ghetto and then to a series of concentration camps. And I think most of us are familiar with his experience where everything is taken from him. And it's about his search for meaning. And for him, as, as Brooks said later, um, well, Frankel wrote, it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. And, you know, his, his task there in that camp was, as Brooks put it, his moral task was to suffer well and to be worthy of his sufferings. And Frankel's other task was to take the circumstances into which he had been put and turn them into wisdom he could take to the world. And then it, it kind of goes on to tell about his experience and what he did when he found himself in this extraordinarily atrocious you know, life-ending, life-altering circumstance. And then here's what Brooks concludes at the end of the section. Few people are put in circumstances that um, horrific and extreme, but all of us are given gifts, aptitudes, capacities, talents, and traits that we did not strictly earn. All of us are put in circumstances that call out for action, whether they involve poverty, suffering, the needs of family, or the opportunity to communicate some message. These circumstances give us the great chance to justify our gifts. Your ability to discern your vocation depends on the condition of your eyes and ears, whether they are sensitive enough to understand the assignment your context is giving you. It's wonderful. Thank you, Liz. And beautifully read as well. Um, and it connects very nicely to what we we're talking about before around kind of service and noticing, you know, What's the second job that I didn't want to take, but I ended up taking because that's what the world asked of me. Liz, I'm wondering for you, when you sit with that question, which is like, you know, what does the, what does life want from me? How do you go about figuring that out? I mean, it's an orientation to ask that question, but then you've still got to figure out what's 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 the what's the what's the answer to the question. Mm. How do you how do you explore that? Yeah, because you know the the goal here is is not to. I think Brooks used the term a purposeful life. Mm. He didn't use this term, but it's the term that I think of. It's like it's how to live a meaningful life. Yes, which I think is a higher calling than a purposeful life. Right. Cause you can be very purposeful about like, I want this mm -hmm. and I want the house, the yacht, the, but like a meaningful life. And I really do believe like we are meaning seeking creatures. Like yeah. people want to make a meaningful impact. They want meaning in their lives. And, you know, it's not about just chasing needs. Oh, these people need this. That person needs that. Like we end up frenzied when we do that. Right. And I think in many ways under contributing, right. I, I think it's about intersections and, there was there was a piece in here as the novelist frederick uh, buchner put it at what points do my talents and deep gladness meet the world's deep needs and so i phrase. think that a deep gladness what a wonderful phrase that is yeah like what brings you deep gladness so it's not mm. about completely forsaking self which is like oh right. you want me to teach programming i'll teach programming you need a program i'll do that it's not about forsaking our gifts it's looking mm these intersection points, which is mm. where is there a deep need? And I have deep or nascent 
talent or capability. And then it's allowing those two things to meet. For example, when they asked me, like, hey, Bob never said this. He was much more polite, but the message was clear. Like, Liz, make yourself useful. Yeah, Truly, yeah. you know. And I knew they needed technical mm. trainers. I don't have a lot of technical expertise, but I love teaching. Yes. And so I'm like, okay, that is, there's an intersection there. There is a need. And I have capability. I don't know that I would call it deep capability because I couldn't program. Right. Like I had like one or two classes in college, but I'm like, I will offer my capability there. Mm. And it's not enough. Like something happens, I think, when like I look for magic points in organizations and work and like magic happens when you have just enough capability to say yes to something, to start a project, but not enough capability to finish it. (laughs) Oh, I love that. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And I think it's what leadership leaders, good leaders do is they give people work that like, you know what? This person has enough capability. I can ask them to start, but they're Mm. not going to be able to finish the job on what they got. Yeah. Which forces learning. That's wonderful. And, and so it's like, we look for these intersection points. Where is there a deep need and where do I have just enough capability Mm -hmm. to walk into that space and say, I can help, but we don't need enough to finish the job. We just need enough to start to say yes. I love that. That's such a wonderful insight. How do you manage the plethora of choices that you have being Liz Wiseman? And I feel like I have some of this as well, being me, which is, you know what? I, I, lo- I love, I have deep gladness around a range of different things. I love yeah. talking on stage. I like writing books. I like running podcasts. I like <laughs> brainstorming with people. I like starting companies. I've got a bunch of deep gladness. And, you have a um, bunch of deep glass. You do, Michael. <laughs> See, you, you you have the curse of talent. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and enthusiasm. Uh, Add enthusiasm to that. I, possibly not necessarily in that order. <laughs> enthusiasm often trumps talent and a degree of self belief, which I'm kind of wired wired to. I think, um, and there's a way that I'm like, I sometimes get a little overwhelmed by, I'm not quite sure how to make the choice because I can see possible magic in a range of different choices. And I would guess that that might be something similar for you as well. So I'm wondering how you, how you make, have the courage to say yes to something and in doing so say no to some of the other things that you could be doing. Mm -hmm. Oh boy, I wish I had a great system for this, but I'll tell you how I sort of feel around in the dark. And there's a part, I think I have a bit of a system, but the part that involves feeling around in the dark is like, where is that biggest overlap Mm. between need and capability? And like, I do believe that we each are, we're sort of like, I don't know, arrive here in life with a set of talents and Mm -hmm that some of these, like for me, they're very, like they're God given, or I don't know where else they come from. They come from somewhere, but like having had four kids, like they come sort of with their, their baggage and their, you know, like they come like fully loaded Mm -hmm. and, 
So I'm looking for places where, where do I have like native mm-hmm. talent there? Or I sometimes I call this native genius in, in yeah. my book, Multipliers, which is the thing that you do like easily, freely, astonishingly well. And if I've got, like, if there's a piece of work that touches on an area where I have like, like actually work here comes easily to me. Like Mm -hmm. I don't have to labor at it. It just flows from me. I tend to say yes to those things. So that's one, Um, you know, where is the need deepest Mm. and like benefits the most number of people and where are you the goodest at this? And like, if you can bring those together, like I say yes to that. Yeah. And for me, it doesn't really involve dollar signs. I'm not like, oh, where's like the biggest return? It's just like, where's yeah. the biggest need and my biggest capability? And, and then I think about people who I have obligations to, like I've, yes. people I've already said yes to. And it's like my family and those, my colleagues where I'm like, no, I've made commitments to these people. So mm. I can't make competing commitments. Yeah. And I think about that and... And then I kind of, I practice the art of blanket nose. <laughs> Very helpful. Yeah. yeah. Like I just say no to everything in this category. Right. Like for years working at Oracle, I had a big job and I also was raising young children. I just said no to every like networking, professional right. association, mix, mingle. Because any one of them, I'd be like, of course I want to do that. That looks yeah. like and I said, no, I have to just say no to all of it. Yeah, that's great. My wife has one of the best blanket no's I've come across. Early days of Boxer Crowns, I was like, I'd love you to come out to this thing with me, networking, socializing. So it looks like I'm not a lonely bachelor. It looks like I've got a real wife. And she's like, if my attending this event is the thing that stops Box of Crayons from failing utterly, I will attend with you. I'm like, okay. And there are still people who've known me for 20 years who are not entirely convinced I'm actually married because they've never met Marcella or they've never actually seen yeah. her seen her live. And I'm like, you know what? It's annoying, but I really respect that clarity of this is what I'm this is the boundary for me. So Michael, this is fantastic. I love that Ruff does that. So have there been times where you have played that card, which is like, no, this is a game ending. Like the company <laughs> will go down if you are not yeah. by my side. The, the one, there's only one event that I ins- sort of insisted that she attend which was the, um, that we had a big party to celebrate 15 years as a company mm-hmm. and she, and she co-owns the company with me. And I'm mm-hmm. like, you know what? I really want you to come along to this because the people that we hire and the people that we work with and they're people who've been the context for our success, you know, be part of this. And she was, and she was happy to do that. Um, but all the other times I'm like, no, I think the company's going to survive whether she comes to this or not. So it was helpful. So Michael, what's one of your blanket no's where you just say, I have to say no to everything in this category. Um, I'm not sure I have, I'm not sure I have a blanket no as a strategy. Um, but I do have, like I use text expander and I just have a, 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 thing I type in, which is semicolon fully, and it pre-populates an, an apology that says I'm not available for this. So it gives me the freedom not to think I have to craft a no. I just have to make a decision that it's a no. And then I just send a preset message, which just says, look, 
I really appreciate the invitation, but I've, I'm fully committed um, with other projects. So I'm afraid I have to respectfully decline. This is so great. Michael, can we call that like an auto no? Yeah. We have exactly. blanket no and auto no. I love auto no. I've thought a time or two of like doing that. Yeah. It's, it's really helpful because I just, I, I will entangle my brain if I'm trying to figure out how to apologize gracefully and sincerely that I can't say no. So I'm like, here it is. Here's my standard no. And people are fine with it, which is the yeah. other remarkable thing. Hey, Liz, tell me how this conversation is connected to your new book, Impact Players. You know, I, I think I picked this because it's an issue I've been thinking a lot about. Mm. Like it's not addressed directly. In fact, I have to confess, I love this summoned self-concept so much and the op-ed that Brooks wrote on this. And yeah. it's called, I think, The Summoned Self. It is. You sent it to me and I, I read it before the conversation. It, yeah. The New York Times. And I tried so hard to weave this into the book. Like I tried three or four times and my colleagues were like, who edit for me and tell me what's bad. Lauren's like, Liz, you're doing it again. Like, I see what you're up to. You're forcing this into this chapter. I'm right. like, I know, cause I really like it. And it never ended up in the book. Mm -hmm. which I feel like it's a shame, but I respect my colleagues calling me on my stuff. But yes. I think it is this principle that underpins what we see, um, so this new book is called Impact Players, and it's a look at the people who are not just smart, talented, and hardworking, yep. but are having a huge impact in their work. Right. They're doing work that's valuable, that's meaningful. And, you know, it's based in a study where I'm not looking at those people versus like the dummies of the world. Yep. It's what are they doing compared to other smart, talented, hardworking people right. who are showing up to work wanting to make an impact, but yet something is impeding that. Right. And, you know, it is one of the things that we see across the most influential and impactful people is that their orientation is not on self. Mm. It tends to be on others. That's they thing and slightly counterintuitive, right? Yeah. And, and you know, what's all, yeah, they, they focus on like, they find out what's important to their organization and they make it important to themselves and their bosses. We did 170 interviews and I did mm. about 70 of those myself. And like, I heard their, their leaders say things like they learned me. Mm. They figured out what was important to me. Not as in like they gamed me, they managed me. It's like they, they took the time to understand my job. Like right. what's on your worry? What are you thinking about? What is your boss thinking about? So they're, they're ferreting out what's important, the agenda essentially. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's one of these art forms that a lot of people don't, we don't talk about. We think about like figuring out people's hidden agendas, right? But there's an important art <laughs> just, form. Of just figure out their real agenda and yeah. then help them with it. <laughs> well, and there's like, there's the real agenda, which is like, here's the official goals of the organization. Yeah, yeah. Then there's the sneaky hidden agendas, but the real agenda is yeah here's what is important and what mm. we're trying to do that maybe is so important. We just haven't had time to write it down. Like this is what's deeply important. Right. And amazing things happen when you figure out what the agenda is and then you work on this agenda. And it's, it's something that we saw in the most impactful yes. people. 
is they do this. They, they tend to, they have better vision than other people. They, and I shouldn't say than other people, when we operate in this mode of working and thinking, we have better vision because we're, we're perspective taking. We're like, okay, if I work for Michael, I'm going to spend time thinking about what does this issue look like from his point of view? What does this look like to our customer's point of view? What does this look like to my colleagues? Like they're, I wouldn't say they're second guessing themselves, but they're constantly getting up out of their seat intellectually to see it. And they have upward empathy and they, they kind of see with the different lens, like this isn't a threat. This is actually kind of an opportunity to be helpful. Is it, is it a learnable skill? I think it's so learnable. It's so learnable. Um, I'll give you one quick example of just, I thought was such a fast turnaround. So I was doing a little webinar and I was talking about this idea of working on the agenda mm-hmm. and what happens when you're on the agenda. Cause when you are working off agenda, meetings get canceled. Right. There's no budget, you know, you're like <laughs> pushing the boulder, but when you're working on an, the agenda, like magic yeah. happens. Mm-hmm. So this guy, um, who is a worship leader at a mega church in California. He's like, Oh, well that, that explains everything. (laughs) I'm off agenda. So, you know, my, my guidance to him is like, figure out what's important to your boss and make it important to you. Yeah. And I kind of give him a simple little recipe for this. He does this. He says, ah, my weekly emails were being totally ignored by the senior, senior pastor. And this, this guy, this worship leader was hardworking. He was talented, did a great job. All those things kept his boss informed. He changed his weekly email and he said, basically told his boss two things. Here's what I understand to be the most important work. Mm -hmm. And here's how I'm working on what's most important. That's perfect. (laughs) And so he writes me and says, wow, I've got a very different response. Like I'm back on agenda. (laughs) I'm on agenda. He's like my week, my Weekly emails used to go into this black hole. I never knew if they yeah. were read. And he goes, now I'm getting responses, encouragement, like mm. coaching, like the, pa- and of course the pastor's thrilled because he's like, so I, you know, I got thrown into management early. I have a lot of empathy for what it's like to be the leader. And it's like, you know how good it feels to have someone say, I understand what we're trying to do. Right. And I'm working on that. Like, you got some hallelujah courses going on in the background, exactly. and, and even probably literally for your for your 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 pastor, but um, but even if you're wrong, if you're like, here's what I think is most important, and here's what how I'm working on it, and if you're wrong, they're like, actually, that's not quite right. Here's what's most important. You're like, oh, next week's email, <laughs> I'll mention this that thing. So exactly. it's a great self-correcting uh, exercise as well. And it's this wonderful coaching invitation for mm. leaders because like, it's hard to say, Oh, I got to go from zero to a hundred miles an mm-hmm. hour on this to explain to someone what's important. But if they can say, here's what I understand to be important right now, right? boy, if I can just give a little bit of correction to that, like, okay, that's it. But yeah. like, it's a little bit different. Actually, this is at the heart yeah. of that, mm-hmm. man, that feels good. That does feel good. wise man or wise person perhaps I told you there was a correlation between her surname and how she just is in the world I mean here's what I love about Liz's work and it's not just that it's research based it's about 
you know, one, how to bring out the very best of people so that they can, two, have an outsized impact in the work that they do. I mean, that basic idea gets talked about all the time. I mean, every leadership book probably has that implied at least. But I do think Liz's work goes deeper than most, deeper than many, because she is someone who, in my mind, has come to absolutely embody the idea of service. All those stories she shared with us, you know, what are they needing, Liz? What do they want? Well, they now weave through the work she creates and she shares with the world. So Liz is a multiplier and she is an impact player because she's figured out what it takes. And yep, you can tell that I am a fan. So do go and buy her book. You may already have a copy of Multipliers. It's been out for a while, but pick up a copy of her new book, Impact Players. Um, I would encourage you to use an independent bookstore if you can. They need our help. Um, if you want to find out more about Liz, you'll find that at wisemangroup.com. Wisemangroup.com. And if you enjoyed my interview with Liz, I'm sure you did, I've got two other possible interviews you might want to check out. Matthew Barzan is the first. That interview is called What to Do with Power. He's the author of a really good book called The Power of Giving Away Power. He made his money in the dot-com days. He helped raise money for Obama, um, really helped, I mean, kind of invented the whole small donation thing and was the ambassador for the US to the UK. So it's a pretty story-rich book. Um, and I thought our conversation was wonderful. It's about the power of giving away power. And the second interview I'd suggest for you is Vikram Manasharamati. Um, his conversation is entitled The Power of Being a Generalist. And again, it's about how do you show up to have the most impact in the work that you do. Thank you so much for listening. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for those of you who've given us a review on your favorite app. Thank you for those of you who passed an interview on. That word of mouth is just the nicest way to grow the podcast. So if you can help us out with that, I appreciate that very much. And if you're looking for it just a little bit more, if you go to uh, the website, mbs.works, find the podcast tab, you'll see the Duke Humphreys. It is a private membership site, totally free, named after my favorite library at Oxford, where all the cool old books were. Um, but my Duke Humphreys has transcripts of the podcast, um, access to all the podcasts that are no longer hosted on the public page, some podcasts we haven't released, and some other downloads as well. Thank you for listening. You are awesome, and you're doing great.